Our text for this morning is found in the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Galatians. If you would turn there with me, Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 6. Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 6. Here's what the Holy Spirit, speaking through Paul, says. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. It's the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray together and ask God's blessing on our time. Heavenly Father, this is your word. Help us understand it by the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, this is a scary passage. A warning to us all, Father. Help us to rightly understand this warning so that none of us may believe a different gospel, Lord. Give us discernment. Give us eyes to see and to obey your word, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Think with me for a minute about everything that goes on in the world under the banner or the title of Christianity. Okay? I mean, just think of all that can fit into that box. I mean, things as different as Roman Catholicism, Greek Orthodox, Oriental Orthodox, Chaldeans, Church of the East, Mormonism, Seventh-day Adventism, all sorts of end times cults, Jehovah's Witnesses, Oneness Pentecostals, the Amish, Mennonites, Baptists, right? We could go on and on. All of these groups claiming the title Christian, all of these groups claiming to be followers of Jesus Christ, most of these groups claiming to be the only true followers of Christ and the only true church, and all of them teaching different and mutually exclusive doctrines. Most of them teaching different gospels from one another. All of them answering this basic question, what must I do to be saved differently? What explains this? I mean, if the Bible is true, how how is this to be accounted for, right? In one sense, we can think, I thought Jesus said he would establish his church and the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. And, and, and secondly, we must think, 
Again, all these groups saying they have the way to salvation, they are the true church, they're the true followers of Jesus Christ, and all of them answering the question of how am I to be saved differently, how do we know who has the true gospel? This is not a light question. This is a question that in the balance hangs eternity. So on one hand, what explains these differences? Well, simply put, we see in this passage, kind of in between the text, this truth. Satan hates the church and has always and still is seeking to destroy it, first through persecution, and when that fails, through deception and distortion of the gospel of Christ. We see this all throughout Scripture. This is a theme. We should not be surprised when we see these things in our day. When we see all of these various groups claiming the name of Christ and preaching different gospels. Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, 11, Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. One of the most striking statements of this, to me at least, is the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20. He's he's saying farewell to the elders of the church in Ephesus, to the elders. And here's what he says to this church. I know that after, I know, he knows, he's not predicting maybe this will happen. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Jesus knew the church would be constantly under the threat of persecution and even more insidiously under the threat of deception. Paul knew the same thing. In fact, think about this. Most of the New Testament letters that we have concern some type of false teachers or false teaching. That's pretty much what most of the New Testament letters are about. Some of them, again, a lot of them are only about that, pretty much. 2 Corinthians. It's a letter about these super apostles, Paul calls them. They're false apostles that have invaded the Corinthian church. They're trying to deceive the church. Galatians here, these Judaizers are distorting the gospel. They're they're troubling the church, Paul says. 2 Peter is all about false prophets that are arising among the people. Jude is about false prophets that are arising among the people. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are all about false teachers attempting to deceive the sheep and destroy the true church. This is not something to be surprised by in one sense. This is the reality of the church. This is simply part of the experience of Christians from the New Testament era up until the modern day. And if you've studied church history, you can come up with a thousand more examples. So here's the question. Do you understand this reality? Do we understand this reality? Are we prepared to live in this reality? Do we understand our doctrine well enough to spot the false gospels, the false teachers, the false prophets? Do we understand the scriptures well enough to distinguish between these things? And do we understand the seriousness of the situation? So let's go to our text this morning. We'll answer some of these questions starting here and as we continue through Galatians more and more. 
And before we dive in, let me just remind you, if you weren't here last week, what's going on? This, this church in Galatia has begun, the, the four churches of Galatia have begun to walk into apostasy. We'll get into kind of what that is later. They've, they've begun to, to buy into, to follow a false gospel that has been presented to them by false teachers. And so as we read, as we walk through the text this morning, I want you to be thinking about, notice the language, how seriously Paul is taking this issue. How seriously he's going to take this issue. Now, the, se- the, the text this morning is broken down into three sections. And so the first section, the first two verses, is this, Paul's astonishment. Notice Paul's astonishment. Verse 6, I am astonished. You could even say, I marvel. I'm amazed. If you want to go old school, I'm flabbergasted that you are so quickly deserting him. Notice the language, the heightened language. So quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Immediately, the tone is set for the whole letter. In every other letter that Paul writes, we have the introduction, and then Paul goes into a lengthy section of thanksgiving. We saw that in 1 Thessalonians. You can see that in every other letter. Oh, I'm so thankful for you. Here's all the wonderful things that are going on in your churches. I praise God for you. Not here. Paul goes from the introduction straight into this opening sentence, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Christ. Straight from the introduction into rebuke, wasting no time. The tone is severe. Paul is angry. Not at the Galatians. He's angry like a good parent because he loves them so much and he can see what is happening to them. They are walking into spiritual danger. Again, like a loving parent, he's he's watching the child make horrible decisions that will cost them their life if they continue in this path. So he uses this language to hopefully waken them up to hear the rest of his argument in this letter. He's, He's trying to alert them to the seriousness and to the gravity of their situation. They have accepted a false gospel. And if they continue to accept it, they will be condemned. Now remember this, these ancient letters were not really written to just be read in daily quiet time, although we do. These letters were written to be read out loud to the congregation when they had gathered. (laughs) Imagine gathering, imagine yourself, you're in a Galatian church on a Sunday morning and you hear, hey, we've got another letter from the Apostle Paul. Church has gathered. Let's read our nice letter from our wonderful friend, the Apostle Paul. You take your seat and you hear this. Imagine the the feeling in the room, the tension in the room. You would sit up straight. Your adrenaline would probably start pumping. If you're like me, your ears would get hot. And it would have the desired effect. You would be listening. I'm sure you could hear a pin drop in that room. What has happened? What have we done? What is Paul going to say? And this should signal the same thing to us as it did to the Galatians. 
what it should signal to us is the issues discussed in this letter are of utmost importance. They are life and death issues. They deal with with the essence of the Christian faith. They, They deal with eternity because they deal with the gospel itself. Secondly, notice this in this, this, the timing, this word, quick, quick. Paul is astonished that they are so quickly deserting Christ. That begs the question, well, how quick did this happen? Now, we don't know for sure, but we can make a good guess. The story of Paul's planting of these Galatian churches takes place in Acts 13 and 14. And the event in Acts 15 had to take place after Galatians was written. So somewhere in there, these churches started to follow this false gospel. And we'll get into that story more as we continue in Galatians. But all that to say, this has probably happened within a year since Paul planted these churches. So these are brand new churches, young churches. It's almost like Paul had just left and then he receives word from someone, maybe someone faithful there who's like, I got to get out of here and let Paul know what's going on. So quickly, they've deserted Christ. Now, this term, so quickly, is is interesting. Like everything else Paul writes, it has allusions to the Old Testament. These churches are similar to the people of Israel in Exodus 32. If you remember the story, the Israelites, they've they've left Egypt. They're at the Mount, Mount Sinai. Moses goes up for 40 days on the mountain to meet with God. 40 days. Comes down with the law. God tells him this in Exodus 32. They have turned aside quickly, same word, they have turned aside quickly from out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and worshiped it. Paul is alluding here to this episode with this familiar language a good Jew would understand, and it has a beautiful irony in it. Why? Again, these false teachers would have been sitting in the congregation as they hear this, and these false teachers knew their scriptures. They were Judaizers. They were people who loved the Old Testament. The false teachers that have infested this Galatian church had convinced the Galatians that to be truly saved, to be in obedience to God, they had to submit to circumcision into the law of Moses. The false teachers, in a sense, were telling the Galatians, you're not really Jewish enough. And Paul here is alluding To this fact, actually, by looking to the law for righteousness, you aren't obeying God. You aren't obeying Moses. You're like the idolatrous Israelites who built the golden calf. That's what you're like. You're perverting the word of God. We read the story of Achan. We see the same word here. He does the same thing with this word trouble. There are some who trouble you. At the end of that story, Achan brought trouble on Israel. Paul's doing the same thing. He's like saying to these false teachers, you are like Achan. You're bringing trouble upon these churches. They thought they were following in the footsteps of faithful Israel. But in reality, they were following in the footsteps of all of unfaithful Israel, idolatrous Israel, sinful Israel. It shows us at least one thing. Sincerity is not a sign of true worship. 
Sincerity is not a sign of true worship. These false teachers thought they were following God. But in reality, not only had they turned away from God, they were leading others towards another gospel. Paul tells us this. He's astonished. They're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Again, just take note of this language, how serious it is. By submitting themselves to circumcision and to the law, they are in the process, in the process of deserting God and the grace of Christ and turning towards something else, another gospel, a false gospel. Deserting. That word deserting is a, is a serious charge. Just like it sounds, it was the word used in, in Greek for military desertion, for a complete change of allegiance. In other words, Paul is saying, if you continue down this path, it, it's not like you're switching from like the navy to the army. You're, you're changing sides. You're going to the enemy's military. They're desert, you're deserting God. You're leaving God, leaving Christ. God is the one who had called them in the grace of Christ. And it is God they are deserting if they continue on this path. Paul wants them to know that by leaving what he has taught them, what God has taught them through him, they aren't just abandoning Paul. This isn't a personal issue. They are abandoning the one who called them, God himself. And how did God call them? In the realm through the grace of Christ Jesus. See, in Christ, through the apostles Paul's preaching, God had called them out of the law and into the promise. Out of works and into grace. Out of self-righteousness and into Christ's righteousness. Out of slavery and into freedom. And they are being convinced that they should go back back to the law, back to their own righteousness, back to confidence in the flesh, as Paul will call it later. Paul wants them to know, if you do that, you're deserting God, you're deserting Christ. That is another, a different gospel, a salvationless false gospel. That's what he says, turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Paul's telling them, this is not just a, a different take on the gospel, a, a slight misunderstanding of the gospel. It's not an a, agree to disagree type of issue. It is what Paul calls a different gospel, meaning this word different. It's an entirely different species it's, it's, it's a gospel from a different world. It has a different source. It's a different religion, you could say. And it has a different destination. It's entirely different. It's distorted. It's perverted. It's a, it's a no gospel gospel sold to them by these false teachers who wish, like Achan, to trouble them and to bring trouble on them, to unsettle them, to hinder their faith in Messiah Jesus, to steal their freedom by resubmitting them to the law of Moses. This is highlighted by this word distort. This word only appears one other place in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 2 verse 20, and here's how it's translated here. The sun shall be turned, 
That's the same word. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. The false gospel is so different from the true gospel, such a distortion that it's like turning the sun to darkness. It's holy and completely different. Life and death, it's opposite. It's how different it is. Now we have to stop and think about this for a moment. Take a moment to reflect on this. What would someone have to do in your mind to the gospel, in your eyes, for you to declare it a different gospel? How, how different would it have to be, so to speak, that you would say, that's not just a misunderstanding. That's a different gospel. How bad would they have to mess with it? Because let's be honest, and again, we'll, we'll kind of get into the specifics later in our series in Galatians, but let's be honest. At first glance, this false gospel, this different gospel to the untrained ear, doesn't seem like that big of a difference on the surface. It's not like these false teachers were Muslims. It, it's not like they were pagans. They weren't. They weren't polytheists. They weren't Gnostics. They weren't teaching people to, to disobey God's law. In fact, they were just telling them they should obey God's law. They were outwardly righteous. They weren't de- denying the divinity of Christ. They were claiming Christ as Lord. They were followers of Jesus, self-proclaimed. They were preaching Christ. They were arguing their position from the scriptures, from the Old Testament, just like Paul. They were preaching the cross. All they were saying is, yeah, that's well and good. But guys, if you want to be in the family of God, if you want to be saved, you need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. That's what the Bible says. That's all they were doing. Book of Acts gives us a little insight into this. Chapter 15. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. That's it. Good news of Jesus with a little circumcision added in. Hey, we should keep the law of Moses. The law is good. That's it. And Paul says, that's a different gospel. That's another religion, essentially. Now, what makes this such a serious distortion of the true gospel? Now, again, the rest of Galatians is about that. But here is the central issue. The Galatians, by buying into this, have taken their their faith and their confidence that was on Jesus, and now they've separated it and put some of it into their own flesh, into their own obedience. They are looking to Jesus and circumcision, a physical mark on their body. They are looking to Jesus and their ability to obey the law of Moses for righteousness. This is a symptom that exposes a wicked root in their theology. By believing just just that little extra thing, they're denying the cross, they're denying the resurrection, and they're showing that they don't understand the purpose of the law, and they don't understand what Jesus accomplished. They thought 
that they could add their own righteousness, their own obedience to Jesus's. They've, been, they've believed that they need to. And by doing that, it's a different gospel. Because by doing that, they're essentially spitting on Christ himself. And as Hebrews says, trampling his blood under their feet. Again, we'll get into more of that later. But for now, we know this. The law of God found in the Old Testament is good. It's pure. It's perfect. Here's the problem. We're not. We all, Jew and Gentile alike, stand condemned by the law, guilty before God. No matter how hard we try and follow God's commands, we fail every time. Every time. The law, though it is good and perfect, is not good news. Do this and live is not good news. Love God and love your neighbor. The summary of the law is not good news. That's not the gospel. That is the law. It tells us what to do. It tells us the right things to do without giving us any power to obey it. And so, it condemns us. But the eternal Son of God became a man, and He obeyed the law in our place, fulfilling all righteousness. He did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. By dying on the cross, He bore the penalty of the law in Himself, in His body on the tree, which is death in our place. And then He rose from the dead, God vindicated him and anointed him, the eternal king, Messiah. And all those, we saw this in Romans 3 earlier, all those who wish to be righteous before God must place their faith not in circumcision, not in obedience, not in their own righteousness, but only in Christ and him alone. Our righteousness, our peace with God comes not by obedience to the law or ceremonies or doing penance, but by our faith in Christ. Why? Because when we place our faith in Christ, God imputes or credits his righteousness to us. It's Romans 4. That is the good news of the gospel. It is the announcement of Christ's victory over sin, Satan, and death, and his fulfillment of the law. The only proper response is faith. Belief, trust, that is how one is brought into Christ and that is how one receives all of the infinite benefits that are found in Christ. And that is the only gospel. It's the only way to salvation. There is one gospel of Jesus Christ because it's only in his name that we are saved. But these false teachers said, yeah, Jesus Got it. And also circumcision. Paul sees that. He hears that. And he says, that's a different gospel, guys. Right? Now, the Galatians, they didn't see that. I don't think they saw that at all. It doesn't look that different on the surface. Why? Again, they're adding to the work of Christ. It's it's a Jesus plus gospel. Jesus plus circumcision and law keeping equals salvation. Jesus plus obedience equals salvation. 
But that's not how it works. If you add anything to Christ's work, anything to the gospel, it's no gospel at all. Paul is letting us know, you either put all of your hope for righteousness and all of your hope for salvation in Christ, or you put it in yourself and your ability to keep the law, your ability to obey. If you try to mix those at all, it nullifies everything. One ounce of trusting in yourself one ounce of trusting in your own righteousness, one ounce of thinking you can somehow earn something before God, and the gospel is distorted. It's perverted. It's a different gospel. Paul says this in Galatians chapter 5. Look, I, Paul, notice the elevated language. I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision... Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision. He is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. He says if you want to do obedience to gain your salvation, you are severed from Christ. You have to choose. Are you going to rely on your righteousness, your abilities, your strength to obey God or on Christ's? Any mixture and the gospel is distorted. We must never distort the gospel. We must never change the gospel and we must never add to the gospel. The true gospel is to be proclaimed, to be guarded to be handed down, to be contended for, but never changed and never compromised. Why? Because to change it, to add to it, is to obliterate it. And so Paul is astonished. He's astonished at how quickly they've, they've deserted Christ and submitted themselves to this law, this no gospel, false gospel. Secondly, Paul's anathema. And, and this is Paul's reaction. And trigger warning, okay, Paul's not nice here. If Paul had a Twitter account, he'd be canceled. In fact, one scholar says this is probably one of the harshest statements in the New Testament. Paul goes full imprecatory, okay? Martin Luther says on this text, he says, here Paul is breathing out fire. Look at what Paul writes. Again, I will remind you, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So not only are we seeing Paul's reaction to a false gospel, but the Holy Spirit's reaction. Paul writes this in verse 8. Even if, if we, Paul including himself in this, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say it again. If anyone, anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him, be his, let him be accursed. What Paul is saying here is clear. If anyone, <laughs> human or even some angelic being comes to you preaching a different gospel, different from the original apostolic gospel, what he's saying is, may they be damned to hell. May God's judgment fall upon them. Where does this, this come from, this cursing language? It's not really something we have in our modern world. 
right? In modern English, we don't really curse people. Um, I hope you don't. Please don't do that. Um, so it doesn't, it doesn't really hit our ears. We think curse, we think maybe like witches or Wiccan or something like that. That's not what Paul is, is talking about here. As usual, Paul's invoking some Old Testament language. This word translated to curse, and you might have this in your translation, is the word anathema. Anathema. Let them be anathema. Now, put your Old Testament cap on for a second so we can see the significance and the severity of this word anathema. Think of the story of Jericho. So the Israelites march around the city seven times. The walls fall. They slaughter everyone in the city except for Rahab and her family. Why did they do that? Why did they do that? Because God told them to. He tells them this in Joshua 6, 17. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Devoted to the Lord for destruction. And the result of that was, remember in Jericho, they literally killed everyone. They killed every animal. They burned the city so far to the ground that there was nothing left. That's what devoted to destruction means. That word is anathema. So if you look at an English translation of the Septuagint, if you don't know what that is, it's okay. It says this, and the city, Jericho, shall be anathema, it and all that is in it, to the Lord. It means devoted to destruction, set apart to God for his judgment to reign on. We see a similar use of this in Numbers chapter 21.3. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah, the Septuagint translation of this. And the Lord listened to the voice of Israel and handed over the Canaanites as subject to him, and he anathematized him and his cities. And they called the, play, the name of that place Anathema. Anathema. To be anathema is to be devoted to destruction, set apart for God's eternal judgment. One Bible dictionary defines it like this. It's, it's a ban for utter destruction, the compulsory dedication of something which impedes or resists God's work, which is considered to be accursed before God. Paul sees this gospel, this false gospel. He hears what these false teachers are saying and says, if anyone preaches something like that or anything different from what I told you, may God's vengeance and wrath be poured out on them. May God conduct his holy war against them, essentially is what he's saying. He's again, like he was before, lumping these false teachers in with the Canaanites and idolaters of the Old Testament. He's cluing them in. You are opposing God himself. Again, flipping the script on them. You think you are the ones propagating the Old Testament, propagating Israel's legacy? No, you are enemies of God, enemies of Christ. You are the Canaanites. You are the idolaters. This is how serious the situation is. Paul has no patience for those who would tamper with the gospel. Now, what are we to do with language like this in our modern day? We don't talk like this, should we? Is this unloving? We have a lot of questions. Well, number one thing we know for sure, one thing we know for sure, if we're uncomfortable with this language, okay, we're the problem. We're the problem. This is holy scripture breathed out by God. So at least we could say there is some occasion where language like this would be justified. Number two, we could say this. 
if we love this kind of talk and we want to talk like this, yeah, that's a sin, okay? The Bible makes it clear that to love quarreling, to love arguing is not a godly character trait. Paul didn't want to talk like this. He hardly ever talks like this in his letters. It's very rare. The majority of his letters are warm and gentle. The love of Christ flows through them. But when you mess with the little bear cubs, Papa Bear comes out. He sees what's going on, and he sees them in danger, and so he uses his dad voice against these false teachers. He knows they're endangering the souls of these churches that he planted. This is not a time for niceties. Number three, this language is not unloving. Nothing is more unloving than to let brothers and sisters walk into damnable heresy because we don't want to confront them. We don't want to face an awkward situation. We don't want them to think maybe that we're judging them. Now, of course, there's a right and a wrong way to do that. You're not the Apostle Paul, so take it easy. But understand the seriousness of this. Again, nothing is more unloving than to let heretical doctrines walk through the church doors unopposed and unconfronted. If we don't take our doctrine as serious as the Apostle Paul, we stand rebuked, not him. And one last last observation on these two verses. Look again at what Paul says. How are we to test teaching and preaching? How are we to test gospels? How are we to test the message of a church or a group or a denomination or or whatever? Whether it's led by a human or an angel, how are we to test it? By the apostolic gospel that has been passed down to us. And where do we find that? In the Holy Scriptures. We are to test all teaching and preaching, all doctrine, all supposed gospels according to what the Holy Spirit has given us in His Word. The magisterial authority of some church is not authoritative when it opposes God's word. Some personal revelation from an angel is not authoritative when it opposes God's word. Paul tells us in another text that Satan comes as an angel of light. Your personal feelings are not how you test a doctrine or a teaching. We test doctrine, teaching by the scriptures alone. The scriptures alone are our soul, our only infallible standard of faith and practice. Any person or church that sacrifices this principle will eventually wander off into apostasy. We must be tethered to the scriptures and use it as our filter to know what is from God and what is from somewhere else. We test all things by the scriptures. Luther on this text, he writes this. He has a way with language. We have here a plain text like a thunderbolt, wherein Paul subjects both himself and an angel from heaven and theologians upon the earth and all other teachers and masters whatsoever under the authority of Scripture. No doctrine should be taught or heard in the church besides the pure word of God, that is to say, the Holy Scriptures. Otherwise, accursed be both the teachers and hearers together with their doctrine. Amen. That's how we know it is from God, by the scriptures alone. And because these false teachers oppose the work of God, Paul condemns them in no uncertain terms. Let them be anathema, he says, devoted to destruction. 
Thirdly, Paul's approval. And now Paul gives us his conclusion in verse 10. Unlike the false teachers, he looks to God for approval, not to people. He gives us these two questions and a conditional. For am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? It's kind of saying like, even with his previous language, obviously I'm not seeking the approval of man or I wouldn't write like this. Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. In other words, if I was in the business of man-pleasing, apostleship was the wrong career choice. Not that he chose it. (laughs) Figure of speech. But it is clear from this statement that these false teachers, remember in the first sermon we looked at, one of the things they're doing is trying to invalidate Paul's authority. One of the accusations they had leveled against Paul was that he was a people pleaser. Now, it's kind of funny. I mean, again, this was early in his, his career of apostlehood. But we, kind of looking back, Paul, a people pleaser, I mean, could there be a more laughable charge against the apostle Paul? Executed for the faith. But they did. They said Paul's a people pleaser. Here's why. They said Paul fears men more than he fears God, Galatians. Did you know that? Well, how could they say that? How were they making this claim? This is what they were saying. Paul is soft-pedaling the gospel to you, Galatians, because you are Gentiles, and so he's not telling you about circumcision and the Mosaic law because he knows that if he told you that, you probably wouldn't want to follow Jesus. He's not telling you the hard truths of the gospel. We are because we love you, and we love God's word. Not like Apostle Paul. He's a people pleaser. He kind of gave you the shortened version. We're giving you the full version of the gospel. They're they're accusing Paul of distorting the gospel, making it too easy to come into the faith. Paul is saying salvation is by faith alone, but really, salvation is by faith in Jesus and works of the law, guys. If you follow Paul's advice, God's not going to just accept you by faith in Christ. So these teachers have come into Galatia from Jerusalem to correct Paul's misunderstanding and to officially help the Galatians join the family of God, to tell them the true, the full truth of God from the scriptures. Now, obviously, none of that is true. And Paul answers that objection later in Galatians, and he shows that they are the ones who are seeking the approval of man. He says this in Galatians chapter 6, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And listen to this. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Paul makes it clear. They are the ones that are seeking to avoid persecution. That's why they want you to be circumcised. They are seeking to please the Jews of these cities and to be able to brag to them about getting their circumcision numbers up. It would have looked really good to the Jews of the day to say, hey, we just got hundreds of Gentiles to submit to circumcision. That's why they want this. If you read the story of the Galatian churches, every one of them has an angry mob of Jews that come and try to persecute the church. So it makes sense that they would be doing this. They probably sold it to the Galatians. Hey guys, if you just get circumcised, these people will leave you alone. Paul says here, you are the ones seeking the approval of men. Paul is uninterested, completely uninterested in avoiding persecution. And he is uninterested in the approval of anyone except God himself. Why? Look again at that last phrase. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. 
Paul says, I used to play that game when I was, when I was a Jew. He gets into that in the next passage. He says, but when I became a servant of Christ, I gave up forever seeking the approval of men. Brothers and sisters, these two are mutually exclusive things. You cannot be motivated at the same time by the praise and approval and affirmation of people and at the same time the praise and approval of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying here that to be a Christian, a servant of Christ, means you seek the approval of Christ and him alone. In other words, Christ is the one who dictates your life, not people. You look to Jesus as your Lord for how to do ministry, for how to share the gospel, for what you believe about the world and everything. Don't look to the approval of men. This is incredibly relevant for us today, brothers and sisters. As individuals, as a church, the world, just like it did in Paul's day, does not approve of so much the Bible teaches. So here's the question. Will you compromise and bend the truth of the scriptures to fit what the world approves? Or will you stand firm on the word of God seeking only the approval of Christ? Will we as a church stand firm in the truth of God? Or will we, like these false teachers, kind of rub the hard edges off the scriptures to try to fit it and try to have both the approval of Christ and the approval of the world? We can't do both. We can't do both. And to try to do both at the same time is to make shipwreck of our faith. We either seek the approval of God or men. One of them is primary, and we can't make both of them primary. This is why Paul preached the way he preached. This is why he preached the gospel he preached, and it's why the false teachers preach the gospel they preach. They give us these two in contrast. Paul's preaching of the truth brought persecution every single time. Just read the book of Acts. He gets chased out of almost every city he goes to. They try to kill him, and eventually he is killed. The false teachers, what did their preaching bring? Admiration, acceptance, approval. Paul was run out. Tried to murder him. What do we learn from this? Brothers and sisters, the gospel has no need for shrewd salesmanship. It's not a product to be peddled according to human desires and felt needs. It's a message from God to be heralded, herald, heralded, heralded, that's a hard word to say, heralded with boldness. The gospel does not need to be modified by us. God does not need our help. It does not need to be softened. It does not need to be improved. The gospel needs to be stewarded faithfully, heralded, proclaimed, announced, guarded, and passed down, pure and unchanged. We must not attempt to make the gospel palatable to our culture. To, to make it, attempt to make it palatable so as to avoid opposition or, or avoid uncomfortableness always leads to distorting it. Instead, we are to proclaim the truth of God's word, the victory of Christ in all of its fullness through the power of the Holy Spirit to the people of Christ, to the people that he will bring to himself. In summary, let me offer a few points of application. 
for us, church. Number one, we must be serious about our doctrine. We must be serious about our doctrine. What we believe about God and the gospel matters. If we love God, we must love his truth enough to guard it and defend it. There are many false gospels and many false teachers in the world today. False gospels do not save. They send people to hell. This is Paul's warning in Galatians. This is why he's so animated. And the only way to spot false gospels is to know the true one. The only way to spot false doctrine is to be deeply saturated in the truths of Scripture. We must know the truth so well that we can spot a counterfeit a mile away. And we must not be naive. When it comes to the gospel, we cannot have a live and let live attitude. I believe in Jesus is not the gospel. That is the confession of every heretical group that has ever existed. Everyone says that. The false teachers in Galatia said that. And Paul pronounced God's judgment upon them. Just believing in Jesus is not what saves us because what that can mean is a thousand different things. So your friends, your family that are involved in, in churches that teach salvation is by, by faith plus Jesus plus works need the gospel. They need the freedom that is in Christ, the righteousness that is in Christ. They need the true Jesus and all of his fullness and all of his glory and all of his freedom and victory. Number two, we must be alert and watchful. Church, none of us is immune to the temptations of false teaching. Take heed lest you fall. And today it comes at us from every direction. Your phone in your pocket is a huge river of false teaching. Most, I mean, YouTube, TikTok, there, if you, there are so many different types of false teaching on those things. I mean, I'm sure almost everyone in this room has a story about a friend who was a Christian, was following Jesus, went down some rabbit hole or started following some teacher on YouTube and deserted Christ. I have seen that story time and time again. We must be alert. We must be watchful and constantly testing everything we hear by the scriptures. This is one of the tasks that is given to the pastors of the church. Knowing sound doctrine and being able to refute false doctrine. But it's also a task that is given to the congregation, to all Christians. Knowing sound doctrine and being able to protect each other from the false doctrine that will assuredly come at us throughout our lives. Lastly, we must be constantly checking our own hearts to make sure that our hearts are in line with what we say we believe about salvation. What do I mean? Well, most of us in this room say that we believe salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Amen, hallelujah. But we so easily slip into a law-based self-righteousness in our hearts. We can so easily say with our mouth, faith alone, and yet live our lives as if we have earned our righteousness before God. 
we can so easily live as if God has begun us by grace, but now we must do our part and obey to receive salvation. My friends, that is the Galatian heresy, and it lives all too easily in our hearts. So, so check your heart. Don't answer these questions fast. Think about them. Think about them this week. Is there any part of your heart that is relying on your own righteousness for good standing with God? This is what I was thinking about this week as I was standing on it, as studying this passage. Is there any part of you that, that feels sometimes, you know, I, I kind of did deserve to be saved by God. I mean, why wouldn't God save me? I've done this and this. I'm like this. I've got this good character trait. Uh, and, you know, I'm pretty useful in his kingdom, actually. I mean, I can kind of see why he, he wouldn't save that person. And I'm not really sure why he saved this person. But for me, like, uh, I could see it. Sounds silly to say it out loud. But these types of thoughts are in our hearts sometimes. And how can you tell? How can you tell? How do you react when people fall short? When people sin, people sin against you, do you look on them with contempt, with anger, frustration? Or do you look to restore them in a spirit of gentleness and familial love in a way that, that resembles the grace that Christ has shown you? When you see someone struggling, do you seek to come alongside them and help? Or do you have an attitude of, I figured it out, why can't you figure it out? See what this is? And these things just, we can say with our mouths that we believe faith alone, I've been saved by grace alone, and yet we so quickly deny grace to others. Self-righteousness, it, it resides in our hearts. So watch out for it. Root it out. We can say that we're trusting in Christ for his righteousness, but in our hearts, are you really looking to some of your own abilities for your own righteousness? Scalation heresy lives or the other side of the same coin is this. How do you react when you sin, when you fail? Do you condemn yourself to hell? Do you think God now will judge me because I failed? Do you think how could God possibly love me that I have done this? Or do you think, well, I've really screwed up this time. I better be really good now. I'm going to try really hard to, to make up for it now, God. Don't worry. I've got this. It's the other side of the same coin. Same thing. You're acting as if, as if your salvation was based on your ability to obey God, as if his love is conditioned upon your obedience. It wasn't, and it's not. This, too, is this Galatian heresy that, that rises up in our hearts. Beware of it. The solution, the solution, beloved, to this heart pride that we all tend to have, well, the first part of the solution is the law. A true understanding of God's law kills our pride and self-righteousness because it exposes how pathetic we truly are. Martin Luther said that our self-righteousness is like a huge, ugly tree and the law is like a really big axe. It shows us that we've all, every single one of us, have fallen equally short of the glory of God. We've broken every law that God has ever given Without Christ, we all are rightly anathema before him. But God, but God, Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in mercy 
Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's not your own doing. Not even 1% your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That is the true, unadulterated, undistorted gospel of Christ. It's the cure for self-righteousness. So, brothers and sisters, let us persevere in the truth. Let us persevere in the gospel of Christ, never wavering, never compromising, never for a second placing any hope or confidence in ourselves, but placing all of our hope in Christ Jesus. Let us look to him for our righteousness and for our approval And may he hold us fast until the end. Amen? Let's pray.